Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Great art aims to transform us and our ideas in some way. As technology has enabled us to customize many of our interactions with the world, including the news we see and the people we communicate with, this can really narrow our view. The pandemic has further put people in tiny social bubbles to keep them safe. But in the safety of our bubbles, there's a danger of distancing everything and everyone who is different, causing catastrophic divisions. Humans are social animals, and diversity of people and ideas is essential for a healthy life. Literature and film have a unique and important ability to take us out of our safe space to interact with different ideas and ways of being in this world. In this episode, I'm joined by an expert in literature and film to discuss important ways in which we can break out of our bubbles and expand our minds through film and literature. Professor David Jarraway is Professor of American Literature and Film Studies at the University of Ottawa in Canada. His work focuses on 20th century American literature and film noir. David is the author of several books, including the one titled Wallace Stevens, among others, Diva, Dames, Deluge, and Culture. His other books and many essays on, focus on modern American literature and film. He is also the editor of Double Takes, Interactions Between Canadian Literature and Film. Thank you very much, David, for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. So over your career, you have taught uh, literature and film studies at university for many years. Can you first tell us an example of a situation when you have seen a student change their views or outlook on the world because of what they learned in class? What did that look like? You know, I I don't think I could pinpoint one example. I think I could point to many examples. My courses, uh, both uh, in literature and film and in tandem, to me are most successful when students will come back to me, maybe on office hours. Perhaps maybe they've gone home for the Thanksgiving weekend, or maybe they're taking another course or courses in tandem with mine, and they will drop in on office hours, or perhaps maybe they'll see me uh, cutting across campus, and they'll say, you know, we had that discussion about a certain topic in the literature and film class. Yeah, I was home this weekend, and uh, we sat down to dinner, and my parents started talking about that, and I wanted to finesse the discussion with a conversation that had taken place in the, in the literature and film class. Mm. And then they've come back to, uh, as I say, come back to me and they'll share that with me. Or, you know, as I mentioned before, a, a student will be minded of something in a class which is completely uh, different from the one that I'm teaching, maybe a criminology class or sociology mm-hmm. class or even, God forbid, business administration, (laughs) but they will say something twigged there. And, you know, it came up in the course of my criminology class. And I just want to share this with you. To me, that those are always moments that my teaching, both in literature and film, is taking hold. Because it's not just an activity or 
an undertaking that's going on within the confines of my literature and film classroom, but it's going beyond that. It's right, going right. into the greater world, so to speak. And uh, I guess educationists, educational psychologists would call that the transfer of training. But to me, when my courses have legs, just in terms of becoming engaged with issues in the classroom and taking them outside the classroom, for me, those are really special moments. So you see the students coming back to you and you hear about how they've applied it to conversations and other studies in their life and in their other academic, which is giving them a different perspective. Exactly. There really is kind of a methodology that I have grown through or that perhaps maybe has evolved in my own teaching career. I had the benefit of actually having a degree in education after I finished my honors degree in English language and literature. Very few professors have the good fortune of doing degrees in education. So The methodology or the pedagogy university level is sort of catch as catch can. But I did have the benefit of this. I taught high school for a number of years before I entered into academia, quote unquote. (laughs) And um, my methodology that also applies to the entire course itself, and I can describe it to you quite briefly. Basically, let's say it's a, a typical literature and film class or literature or film class where I am the person who's basically in charge of the learning uh, in the very first instance and, and, and modeling, you know, per, perhaps maybe a particular concept or an idea. And then very quickly, I feel that I have to get out of the way mm-hmm. and I have to turn that idea or that concept uh, over to the student. Now, the student, I don't think at that point is prepared. So this seems to me where getting students into groups and getting them interacting with each other is a real boon to education because they're helping each other out. Right. But ultimately, my goal is to make that student, that that individual student, quite autonomous and quite independent so that by the end of the class, after there has been in the middle interactivity of one sort or another in in groups and so on, I leave them with a question. Every student puts pen to paper and responds to the question in a very individual and a very personal and a very independent way. And then I ask a student to take away these, what I often refer to as diary entries, and they come back to the class the next day and they'll report. And that basically becomes the basis upon which I perhaps maybe will launch into class number two. That whole idea of ultimately me getting out of the way and introducing various kinds of activities, which then will allow at the end of the day, the student to perform in a very independent, very individual way, um, mm-hmm. is, is the germ of how an individual class is constructed, but I would say is basically how the entire course is constructed as well. And then again, coming back to this whole issue of transferring that training into other contexts, yeah. other classes, yeah. other courses, and ultimately, you know, into a kind of a, a learning that's going to take place beyond um, the degree, um, a kind of a lifelong learning, if you will. That student who comes back to me after the Thanksgiving holiday, having, you know, raised a couple of issues from our class with their parents over the turkey, basically becomes a model for 
the sort of transfer of training that ultimately my individual classes and my entire courses attempt to achieve ultimately. It's a far more meaningful engagement with the student for sure. Absolutely. That's a really great way to apply it to the outside world and to other contexts. And so in terms of film studies and, and literature, what is the essence of these courses? What are they learning? Again, I go back to my own teacher training. Um, one of the more compelling readings that I recall years and years ago was a taxonomy of, of educational goals by Benjamin Bloom. That stayed with me and, and, and continues to um, nourish me and inspire me as I put courses together or classes together and courses together. Because for those who are not familiar with the taxonomy, Bloom makes quite clear that factual knowledge is really only a very tiny part of the uh, educational enterprise. And there are many levels of engagement beyond that. What one does with the facts, for example, in contextualizing them, and then hypothesizing about how those are coming together in other kinds of contexts. And then ultimately synthesizing that knowledge and then making, making judgments. So we're into something really quite sophisticated and really quite complicated at the end of the day in my own thinking about how courses are put together, ultimately, again, coming back to this uh, notion that the student has to be really quite independent and quite autonomous, both at the end of a, an individual class and then perhaps maybe at the very end of a course of study. Mm. This idea of being able to be in a position to read a text, mm -hmm. a film text, a literary text independently, uh, without any help from me or without any help from his or her peers. And then to be able to make judgments about that, judgments mm -hmm. of, uh, of the rightness and wrongness of what basically is going on in, in the text itself. Right. Or the goodness or the badness of the, of the text. Uh, but just simply to um, be in a position at the end of the day to make discrete choices and to make independent judgments about mm -hmm. things. And analyze the ideas, I guess. Exactly. That seems to me to be the ultimate goal. So I use uh, literature and uh, film and literature and film in tandem with each other, uh, basically to forward that kind of uh, judgmental engagement by mm -hmm. the end of whatever I happen to be teaching, whether it's an individual text within a particular class or a genre, like film, for example, a particular kind of film um, at the end of the course. Media literacy is being taught in elementary and high schools, and there's a huge emphasis on it. And sometimes that's a very elusive term. What does it mean to have media literacy class? As you were describing, you're really training people to analyze and to pay attention and to go back and think about media in different ways especially in this very uh, multimedia convergent world. So what, what do you think is important to understand and decipher in the information that we get through different media sources? How, how does literature and film studies help in this regard? I mean, you said that you help students to stop and analyze, but what, what do you do in your classes to help media literacy? Well, in the first instance, there is a kind of a feedback loop, as I was mentioning before, how the film text 
can gain in significance in relation to the literature text via this whole activity of attention and close reading and, and having uh, this attitude. And I think the same thing um, can be said for the way students can begin to think about the whole notion of genres, for example. Like, for example, in, um, in the context of films, uh, they're probably very familiar with you know, the Western genre, for example, or the romance genre, a kind of a, um, a, a ger generic approach to a text um, that's very closed, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Literature can be thought of in those terms as well. I tend to lean more on inviting students to feel or at least to uh, appreciate that there is a kind of an openness to the whole notion of, of genre mm -hmm. as well. So we have the, the notion of a, of a classic literature text, which can be a, a kind of a closed, autotelic, Donnay, for example, Aristotle's um, notion of a, a beginning and a middle and an end. I often use uh, film noir, for example, as a kind of a genre to break apart this notion that a text, whether it's literary or film, necessarily has to be closed in just that way. You know, to take another example of, of Alfred Hitchcock, Thornton Wilder composed, wrote a, a play called Our Town. Many of my students are familiar with that because often, oftentimes uh, Our Town is, is a, a play that's performed in drama clubs in high schools quite frequently. A few years later, Thornton Wilder penned alongside Alfred Hitchcock's wife a screenplay called Shadow of a Doubt. And two texts could not be more antithetical to each other. Um, our town is a very closed, a very sentimental, a very uh, conventional, and some people would say a very stereotypical <clears throat> view of small town life. Shadow of a Doubt is also about a small town, but nothing could be closed. Nothing could be as sentimental and nothing could be as stereotypically affirming as, as that text is. Mm. So, so side by side, um, it's possible for us to think about a genre. And actually, this can actually bleed into another a very interesting topic, uh, the whole notion of gender as well. Mm. But genre as, a, as an open form. And then it might be possible through the exploration of, of this much darker uh, view of small town life. In this case, it's Santa Rosa, California, mm. rather mm. than this um, Grover's Corners in New Hampshire. It might be possible then to revisit our town and actually see that there are undercurrents of a more subversive nature, perhaps maybe in our town, they're anticipating what Thornton Wilder will, will pen, uh, mm. you know, three mm. or four years later. I think that really does become part of the whole process of, of, of thinking about how these courses can make students a little bit more astute about mm. at least get them to dismantle kind of preconceived notions about what a literary or what a film text mm. might be proposing uh, to offer to them by way of some kind of engagement. And so that dismantling of what they are expecting of a certain genre, how does that relate in terms of navigating this multimedia world, uh, what do you think might be helpful in that for them? Well, again, I think this idea that something that apparently appears to be closed, in fact, can be open, 
engages the student in ways that dismantle stereotypical kinds of approaches to yeah. literature or and, and to film as well. And that um, notion that a text can be open in ways that can engage them in quite unconventional and quite unstereotypical forms of thinking, again, puts them in a position where they can, going back to what I mentioned before about, about engagement, uh, begin to think about how their own sense of self and their own sense of identity perhaps may, may be a bit too closed as well. Mm, yeah. And so there's the opportunity for them to begin to start thinking about how characters in open texts may be provocations for getting me, myself as an individual, to think about various ways in which alternatively I can think about myself as a subject mm. or myself as an identity or myself as a, as, as a gender. Perhaps maybe, uh, again, is another form of that the cognitive dissonance, I suppose, that educators uh, do talk about. Yes, I recall you using a really terrific phrase in one of your uh, previous podcasts about this idea of um, learning to be comfortable with discomfort. Yes, that's exactly. I think Very it was. Important. A, yeah, I think it was a, a, a podcast on, um, on on citizen subjects, young mm-hmm. people, and civic subjectivity. Yes, th- that really resonates. It seems to me with the kind of invitation that an open text offers students, if these characters can comport themselves in ways that are really quite unstereotypical and really quite unconformist, I often refer to them as dissident subjects. Hmm. Uh, What's at stake for me in that? Um, What am I given to ruminate or reflect upon in my own life as a as a subject? How, how, How different should I be thinking about my own individuality, my own subjectivity? And then not just, not just ruminating about that issue itself, but I think at the end of the day, making choices. Uh, it, it's really, really important. Coming back to that whole Bloomian taxonomy that I was mentioning previously, yeah. where uh, right. students independently and quite individually make choices uh, at the end of the day, make judgments about the experiences they've had. So right. um, kind of a repertoire of choices is open up to them. But I think ultimately choices do have to be made mm. and responsibility goes along with making those choices. And it may be just that, uh, you know, here I've, given, I've, I've been given the opportunity to ruminate on various ways in which I can think about my life in these quite different these quite open ways. But at the end of the day, no, I think really the kind of individuality or identity that I'm bringing to this whole experience is the one that for now, and I think it's really important again to emphasize this idea that we're, we're in process, we're in formation. For yes. now, I think I'm okay. And uh, I, do, I have given thought to all of these alternatives mm-hmm. There has been some reflection going on here, but um, for now, this is where I am, and this is where I'll perhaps maybe continue to be for a while, which doesn't preclude the fact that, again, we can come back to this whole engagement with with something more open Mm. and uh, rethink the whole thing once again, you know, through a kind of an evolution or a kind of a development at some future point. I've really had a wonderful experience with this. 
I'm now uh, retired from the University of Ottawa, although I continue to uh, I continue on as an emeritus professor. But I've um, uh, I've had the experience of joining the Learning and Retirement Program at Carleton University. Mm-hmm. My cohort there. Well, now they've retooled the name. It's now called Lifelong Learning, which I think is probably yes. a more appropriate title. But Definitely. the cohort there basically tends to be older people. Right. Whereas I've spent 35 or 40 years working with m- mostly young people. Mm-hmm. And now um, uh, I'm, I'm working with a cohort of older people. And uh, again, you know, dealing with open and closed issues with regards to responding. So how do you define an open and closed issue? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that when you're saying open well, and closed? I had a wonderful encounter with this very notion. Um, I can give you a musical example quite recently. There's a, a theater group in Toronto called Against the Grain Theater Ensemble. Mm-hmm. And it's a musical ensemble. And right. one of the associate directors is named Miriam Khalil. Uh, she's a graduate actually of our music school at the University of Ottawa. She talks about Handel's Messiah. We're all familiar with Handel's Messiah yes. at Christmas time, especially, right? The Hallelujah verse and so on. This is a classic text. In her Against the Grain theater ensemble, it's a, it's a musical organization. She came up with this idea that um, for many of the very famous arias, and there are many of them, of course, in Handel's Messiah, she would invite artists, singers from various backgrounds to choose a particular aria and explain what draws them to that particular aria and then sing the aria, perhaps maybe in their own language or in an idiom which is uh, closer to their own identity than the classic you know, English version of this. So we have right. um, an Inuit aria, uh, we have a Canadian, an African-Canadian aria, uh, Miriam herself mm-hmm. sings uh, an aria with her own Arabic background and so on. And uh, she ultimately calls this the Handel complex. And it's that word complex that resonates with me because Handel becomes something really quite new. It's not the classic Handel's Messiah anymore, Interesting. but now it's, it's a kind of a hybrid Handel. Mm-hmm. That to me is a kind of a model of the sorts of things that uh, I, re- I really uh, cotton to when literature and film kind of rub up against each other in this very kind of open way. I think going back to your question, what is open as opposed to what is closed? I think this idea, the notion that we had a canonical text on the one hand, perhaps maybe Thornton Wilder's uh, Our Town to go back to my previous example. But then we have something really quite hybrid, quite extraneous, quite off the map or beneath the radar screen, so to speak, in the form of Handel's Messiah Complex or uh, Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt or or Psycho, for example, Uh, something really quite open and quite hybrid and and something that really kind of forces you or urges you to think about your engagement with that text in very unconventional and very non-stereotypical kinds of ways. Absolutely. That's really fascinating. That must have been an amazing experience. And, uh, and that's just it, isn't it? That literature and film offers us the ability to see different aspects of life and different ideas that we would have never really been exposed to and to interpret it and to bring it into our own lives or to interpret our lives and experiences against it, uh, which is 
extremely helpful in order to be able to open our minds. And this idea of, of open and experiencing different thoughts and different types of uh, ways of life, I mean, brings us to the idea of safety, which is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because especially with, with media and multimedia, uh, safety comes up a lot in terms of parents protecting their children from what they might find online and what kind of ideas or what they might be exposed to. And safety has become a huge word also during this pandemic as we're bubbling up in our safety household bubbles. And there's a real danger in this in terms of narrowing our perspectives. But it's so important to be exposed to different ideas and different ways of life, exactly as you said, to be able to broaden our, our own vision and our own ideas and think about how we apply to those thoughts. So what do you think is the danger, first of all, in the divisions that can happen when we are all trying to stay safe and not interact with danger or outlandish or different ideas? What is that danger? That's a question that I often give uh, much reflection to as I make selections for my literature and my film courses. I think uh, the notion of, of norms and then departures from norms basically mm -hmm. comes back to what I was mentioning previously about closed and, and, and open kinds of texts. Yes. And uh, more particularly, I think it redooms to this whole idea of the, the closed and the open subject, which I also gave some brief uh, mention of as well. It, it, it does seem to me that <clears throat> a kind of a closed approach to one's own identity basically is something that the algorithmic <laughs> kind of preoccupation that social media seems mm -hmm. to underline is really the downside of identity when mm -hmm. what you are basically attempting to do is find yourself in correspondent, that mm -hmm. is to say in mimetic, that is to say in reproductive relation to people like yourselves. I think the really important word there is like. That's a kind of a, a, a sense of self, which is really a sort of a vicious circle. I was just reading today the, the overriding um, judgment, I forget, the governing body on Facebook, which has denied our former president, Donald Trump, uh, a place on Facebook for another lengthy period of time. And uh, the commentator was uh, concluding his remarks about, well, he was talking about the up and the downside of that uh, final judgment, but the idea that uh, Facebook can, uh, or at least social media can be kind of a, a sort of an echo chamber mm -hmm. where we are constantly uh, in sort of a feedback loop, basically reprocessing ideas that we're already familiar with yeah. uh, simply because there's no change uh, involved in them. It's basically a kind of a, a, self, a form of self-flattery. We're surrounding ourselves with um, essentially everything that really is correspondent to what we believe and what we think. And then we kind of pull ourselves in and we, 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 we try and protect that very closed space in this, it seems to me, a very decided form of way, at least provide the opportunity for thinking about it alternatively so rather than rather than thinking about 
you know, one's sense of self as a kind of a closed circle. I'm, I'm thinking of Emerson here, Ralph Waldo Emerson, very famous 19th century American essayist who, who, who writes very eloquently about this whole issue in an essay called Circles. So we want to, we want to turn that, that circle into a cycle. What's the difference between a cycle and a circle and a cycle? Well, a cycle is open to time. We define a cycle as a kind of a, a recursive structure, which is open to time. And by virtue of being open to time, it's open to change. It's, it's, it's open, I think, is really what's, what's really important there. Rather than being a correspondent, we're thinking about, you know, we're thinking about it being more a, a sort of a construction or a self-construction. It's yeah. possible to put yeah. this particular notion of self at a side and perhaps maybe put an alternative one in its place, even mm -hmm. if it's just, you know, for the purposes of exploring or experimenting. And then, and then it's not, I think, at the end of the day, ultimately a kind of a, a correspondent notion where, you know, like is like like is like, and uh, everybody is basically in this echo chamber, algorithmically reproducing what they already know. But on the other hand, we have an approximation of something quite other, or something quite different, something yes. quite alternative. So again, we come back to this whole yeah. notion of an open and a closed. Um, I, again, uh, you know, I, I recur to a very famous film, perhaps many of your listeners are quite familiar with, The Wizard of Oz a film by Victor, uh, directed by Victor Fleming from 1939. And there's that tag that's repeated all the way through the film. No place like home, no place like home. Dorothy, you know, in the midst of this uh, tornado that descends <clears throat> on her and Toto in Kansas is taken off into this extraordinarily different and quite unconventional and um, quite dangerous in some ways world. It gives you the sense that that tag, that very famous tag, no place like home, is, is perhaps maybe offered mm. to us in that film in a very ironic way. And um, that's another notion that, you know, I follow quite closely through many of my literature and film courses, this idea that uh, there is no place like home. If we're looking for home, and I think we recall perhaps maybe uh, on January the 6th when there was a horrendous riot in, in Washington, when the rioters burst into uh, the Capitol building, many of them were shouting, we're home, we're home. This, this, hmm. this notion that home is a physical place, and it, it has to be has to be guarded and it has to be protected, has to be sealed off. And uh, what's kept in is kept in and what's kept out is kept out, so to speak. But no mm. place like home, you know, if we look at that in a very ironic way, and I'm sure that The Wizard of Oz becomes a quite different experience repeated throughout the film in this very ironic way, no place like home. Home becomes not necessarily a physical presentiment, but it really becomes a kind of an attitude no place like home, well, then what is home? We begin to think about home in quite, again, unstereotypical or quite unconventional sorts of ways. Edward Said, the very famous post-colonial critic, uh, once uh, referred to it as, uh, as a, a feeling of being at home in the world. Isn't that a wonderful mm. thought? Mm. That we can think about that home as being a kind of a global phenomenon. And uh, what we're yes. really in search of is a kind of a, an attitude 
that puts us in the presence of otherness. You know, it may be an uncomfortable feeling, but it behooves us. I think the invitation is to think about it as a very comforting notion that, you know, there is a physical place that we're in search of, but it really is a kind of an attitude or a kind of an outlook, uh, which is, I think, at the end of the day, going to benefit us. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because either with physical home or an idea of uh, philosophy of life type of home of the echo chambers that we fall into in, in our online world, because now everything is so customized and we hear and see the same things that we prefer. The danger is that you become so comfortable with that, that it becomes really scary to be exposed to anything else. But in a world that is so complex, it doesn't, it doesn't function well at all when it's homogenous. Well, again, I, I can come back to where our conversation began Mm -hmm. and and, uh, the invitation again to think very carefully about insignificant and really kind of uh, a homely (laughs) kind of metaphor such as the home Mm. and really reflect on uh, what the invitation is um, in terms of uh, thinking about that notion as a non-physical entity really a kind of an attitude yeah and in a way we have to through this film and and literature, we're exposing ourselves, or we should be trying to expose ourselves to different ideas, almost recreating the the times of the past when there was the marketplace where you bumped into people that you would never socialize with, you would hear things that you would never talk about in your circle, but you're mixed with everyone else, and you can actually exchange these ideas and different ways of being in life, um, Mm -hmm. which now we almost have to create for ourselves so that in our news feeds, in our video watches, in our Netflix account, there's a there's diversity so that we don't get closed off. So how do you see, for example, in terms of the importance of this, I mean, in terms of literature and film, you've talked about how it gives a glimpse of, of the different uh, ideas towards sexuality, women's rights, different cultures. What are some examples in the ways that it can create greater understanding and acceptance and and in history, there have been examples, haven't there, of, of literature and film sparking these movements and, and social changes. Mm-hmm. Again, um, I can go back to um, the one that I mentioned previously, the Our Town lined up against uh, a film like Shadow of a Doubt. You know, Hitchcock is very, very careful in uh, lining up the anti-hero there, Uncle Charlie, who comes into Santa Rosa and misorders the whole domestic setting um, mm-hmm. of uh, the family unit there in ways that they never thought possible. And uh, his niece, very interesting, is referred to, her, her name is Charlotte, but she's referred to as Niece Charlie. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a bonding between those two, uh, older male uncle mm-hmm. on the one hand, and this young adolescent, you know, on the cusp of adulthood and giving a lot of thought to um, where she's headed in terms of, you know, her own maturing. Yeah. Uh, she eventually has a relationship with a detective who's attempting to suss out the criminality mm-hmm. of, of her uncle and so on. But this idea of pairing the uncle and the niece and giving them a kind of a, a, a masculine gendered uh, bonding is a way of getting us to think 
that perhaps maybe uh, Thornton Wilder and uh, Hitchcock's wife, who was also a co-screenwriter on this project, to get us to think that perhaps maybe there is a kind of transformation going on there or a kind mm -hmm. of a transposition going on there between the male identity and the female identity. And eventually, um, when, when we get into the post-war making of uh, these kinds of films, uh, it becomes characterized as film noir. In fact, that does become a kind of a model for the femme fatale. It's a kind of a female subjectivity, which is looking for empowerment in the way yeah. that for decades, for centuries, uh, had been the privilege of uh, the male subject. Right. Uh, so here's uh, niece Charlie attempting in her own way to bond with her uncle and try and recuperate some of his power, his ability to make his way in a very unconventional and very un unstereotypical kind of domestic setting. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. One point in the film, he says, uh, you know, the world is a big dope for me. And of course, uh, both niece Charlie's mother and father are aghast that he would say this, not only to the mother and the father, but also, I think, to niece Charlie's um, employer, uh, mm -hmm. banker, as well. Uh, but uh, this idea that, uh, you know, it's possible for her in her own way to uh, follow uh, a kind of an unconventional path and not do the traditional sorts of things that she sees her mother doing as the conventional homemaker circa 1943, where the father is the breadwinner when Uncle Charlie has been perfectly happy not to be gainfully employed throughout his entire <laughs> life, for example. So uh, it's, it's those kinds of issues that I think uh, Hitchcock seeds in 1943. And then you can see how these are anticipating basically uh, changes that in fact will take place uh, later on Yes, yeah, yes. In, in, in North American culture, we're thinking, for example, of um, the second and third wave feminism and the women's movement. And then beyond that, we think of, you know, coming into the 21st century, you know, we can think about, well, of course, at this shank end of the decade, at least, or the, the second decade, uh, the Me Too movement, or perhaps maybe prior to that, uh, the pussy hat phenomenon that <laughs> basically overtook yes, America yeah. in 2016. And so, yeah. so you can see back way back in 1943, you know, these uh, kinds of uh, issues are, are beginning to uh, percolate throughout mm -hmm. the culture. And uh, to me, this seems to me uh, to be a way to answer your question, the way these texts can gain some legs and begin to speak to issues that are more relevant and more immediate mm -hmm. to our own to our own times. Mm, because they're not necessarily, I think sometimes it's, uh, it's understood as literature or film kind of gives the idea and gives the spark. But in fact, what they're often doing is that the artist recognizes an undercurrent that is not yet very visible in society and brings it to the fore in certain ways. For, for exactly. people to interact with it. So yeah, there is there is such a historical notion as the post-war settlement. During the war, <clears throat> just to contextualize that that 1943 uh, Hitchcock is making this during the Second World War, many of the men in North America are of course are fighting a war right. uh, overseas, and that leaves women essentially to be all of a sudden the breadwinners or at least those responsible for holding the family together. So we have the, for the very first time, this notion of a single parent or a single family unit. 
for instance. And then the war ends and the men come home and the women basically are once again con consigned to a, a kind of a domestic sort of role that, that was all too familiar with them before uh, the war took place. And so, you know, the men become the breadwinners once again, and the women become the homebodies and the, and the homemakers and so on. There's a kind of a, a, a restiveness about that, at least Charlie, uh, at least in the way she's anticipating the kind of restiveness that will take hold in America. Is it really settlement? And one thinks not. One thinks that seeds have been planted there where it's possible for women to begin to think about themselves in these much larger, more responsible, more... Diverse roles. Diver mm -hmm. Exactly, more diverse roles than they had been accustomed to before. So, as I say, a seed has been planted and mm. there's a genre there that is basically now going to take this up uh, in the context of um, anti-heroes and femme fatales and let's see where this is going to go. Yes, absolutely. And, and how much political hate can be made of it. Mm. And so what advice would you have for individuals and also for teachers who use literature and film as a way of expanding mind and, uh, and bursting these, these silos and these bubbles? Mm -hmm. And how do you help someone and how should you be thinking about the different ways you read literature, the different films you watch in order to kind of absorb and understand some of the, uh, these ideas that are being uh, communicated? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good question. I think probably I would come back to this whole notion once again of the, of the dissonance that, that these texts uh, often provoke uh, in students again, who are reading closely and very responsibly now, both literature side by side with film and, and vice versa, there is this extraordinary sense of contradiction oftentimes. I mean, students will say that. I mean, students will often say, well, if this is such a, an ameliorative kind of genre, <clears throat> uh, if this is supposed to be headed toward all kinds of uh, different but ultimately um, positive comportment. Why so much violence, for example? Mm -hmm. Why so much rage? These are all really quite negative responses to experience in, in our culture. Right. And uh, sure enough, um, I think they're spot on. I mean, it, it does make us really quite uncomfortable to see, uh, for example, to go back to uh, poor niece Charlie at the very mm -hmm. end of that film, having it out with her uncle on a moving train. And uh, there's the moment there where Uncle Charlie falls in, in, in front of a locomotive. Does she push him or was that an accident? Um, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, she's really an empowered female entity at this point, attempting to make her way in a very masculine and a very patriarchal culture. It's a, it's a very contradictory moment. It's a moment of, of, of intense ambiguity. And I think the invitation there is not necessarily to resolve it one way or the other. You know, A triumphs over B or B triumphs over A. But at the center of that, is this sense of ambiguity and the contradiction. I think what really goes with that, and this is, I think, where the, the teacher really has to be on his or her mettle, is to instill a kind of a tolerance for those moments of contradiction, mm -hmm. uh, those moments of ironic discombobulation, where you're kind of in suspension. Mm. I, I don't know. I think ultimately we all make a judgment or make a decision one way or the other as to what the filmmaker or what, what the author has intended. But right. until then, I think it's really important 
for the teacher not to foreclose the discussion, right. but in fact, to invite further reflection mm-hmm. on those moments of contradiction, on those moments of ambiguity. It, it really is an issue of tolerance uh, to be able to withstand putting yourself in the way of the other, so to speak. This is, again, coming back to what you were suggesting before about, um, you know, we bubble up in a pandemic. I mean, the upside of that, of course, is that we are keeping ourselves safe. And by virtue of keeping ourselves safe in the confines of our own family units, we're keeping others safe as well. But the downside of that, of course, is that uh, this can become a very comfortable space that we find ourselves in. As I mentioned before, a very prophylactic, a very safe place to be Mm -hmm. in. And I think the invitation really is at that moment just to kind of reflect on what it would be like if, you know, so yes. we're into the whole area of hy- hy- hypotheticals and um, speculatives. And I think that really is where the teacher leaves the student ultimately. And again, coming back to where our conversation began, uh, the invitation is for that student to begin to uh, ruminate uh, further about that in a very independent and a very subjective and very personal, but I think also a very responsible way. I often end my courses of study in the last class, perhaps maybe I even put this in the syllabus in so many words, I talk about in conclusion. Okay. (laughs) And I put in in brackets because I really don't want the class to conclude. I really want it to be inconclusive in just the way that I was describing this, seeding this notion of tolerance for ambiguity, Mm -hmm. for contradiction, or to use your phrase, to provide uh, an opportunity for students to feel comfortable with discomfort uh, is really the essence absolutely uh, to me of where the whole directive of literature and literature and film perhaps might be going absolutely and it offers such a in some ways a very safe way of having a practice of disagreeing and having constructive arguments where you learn something about other ideas and other people because as you said in that film, you can definitely discuss and argue on what actually happens at the end. Does she push him or does he fall off accidentally? And it can bring out a lot of different issues to discuss and ideas to play with. That it's such an important thing for for people to discuss and also in their own minds have those contradictory ideas so that we're not too comfortable in our own way of thinking and in having a black and white world because it's it's definitely not black and white. So that is really great. And hopefully there's a lot of great discussions, especially now in uh, in classrooms and helping at least to connect people and learn to discuss in constructive ways. So one of the big things that has been happening for a while and now during the pandemic has, has been increasing is that universities around the world are facing financial hardships and cutting courses, cutting different, even departments. For quite a long time, it's always been the arts that have been cut back on when something needs to be cut. It's very clear why it's so important to have the arts and have these multidisciplinary ways of learning and understanding the world. What do you think is important for universities to understand before they make these types of changes? Mm 
Well, I certainly have been giving a lot of thought to that in the last 10 years with a department member in the English department at the University of Ottawa. We watch our enrollments constantly declining over the years and more generally uh, seeing the Faculty of Arts become really quite an embattled faculty. When you think about um, how flush we were with students and enrollments and registrations uh, 20 and 30 years ago, it is true that uh, students more and more are thinking and very practical and very pragmatic terms about what a university mm -hmm. ought to provide for them when they come here and um, what they get when they when they leave. It's very difficult to make the argument that faculty of arts and certainly departments of English are attempting to do something really quite impractical and quite unpragmatic. It is the case, though, that um, there is a kind of, again, to go back to Benjamin Bloom, there is a kind of an effective aspect to learning and to education, which I think is gainsayed by this notion that the university is going to provide me with some kind of certification or some kind of authentication, which is going to lean to gainful employment. I think it might be possible, given many of the things that we've talked about here uh, this afternoon, to think about the importance of those effective aspects of what go, what goes on in literature and film and literature and film classes. For example, the idea that the middle part of a class or the middle part of a course where students <clears throat> do some reporting on a particular text to the teacher to demonstrate the skills and to demonstrate the learning that they've acquired over the, the course of uh, the first six or eight weeks of a course. Something to be said about, you know, engaging with others, uh, participating, um, becoming actively yes. involved with other people. If you're thinking about, uh, you know, coursework just in terms of what's at the end of it for me, then all of that appears to be lost. So if it's possible to engage students in a way that takes them beyond, you know, these very practical and these very pragmatic considerations, I think one of the things is them in concert with each other and to show how this kind of interactivity as a part of the whole learning process can be a lot of fun. And also, you know, just on the whole business of fun, where is the fun? Where is the pleasure of learning if it only is geared <laughs> yes. in this very tunnel vision kind mm. of way? Again, thinking about what's in it for me and what's at the end of the line once I'm, mm. uh, I, I'm through with this whole experience. Come back to this notion of being in a position to make discrete value judgments about in this very independent and very subjective way that students are able to appreciate value in what they're doing. And again, this is a kind of a, an mm -hmm. affective goal that really falls quite far from the mark if the considerations are only purely pragmatic mm -hmm. and, and purely practical. But mm -hmm. uh, the idea that it might be possible to think that you have a repertoire of choices and then you do finally make a value judgment about the one that best suits you and then you come away with a, a kind of an incipient formation of a value system. That to me seems to me to be part and parcel of what the effective training going on in, in arts classes and English classes and more particularly in literature and film classes is really at the, the center of the engagement. You know, to hear Laurentian University, for example, now undergoing an economic restructuring, 
and mm. uh, to just hear mm. these really, really quite heartbreaking stories about how music faculties are shut down and language uh, initiatives are, are being mm. foreshortened. It, it really is disheartening to think yes. that in those very contexts, this whole taxonomy of, of effective objectives, in addition to the one that I mentioned before about these more knowledge-based or more knowledge-centered kind of goals, to think that those can be sacrificed because there's something really more pragmatic and more practical and ultimately more self-serving to be gained by circumventing seems to me to be. And it's also very, very short-sighted, isn't it? Because this is exactly it in this very multidisciplinary world. Actually, there's a lot more intersection between the arts and philosophy and science and engineering, recognizing that and recognizing how it's important. And of course, now there's a lot of philosophers who are increasingly working in AI technology because ethics of AI is much more critical issue than mm -hmm. the actual technology of AI. And so you need philosophers and you need people who are trained very differently. And then same goes for the arts and, and in different aspects. So recognizing these would be an extremely important, important aspect of a university to see how that does actually come together and why it's important. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully, hopefully that can happens increasingly. Well, this was absolutely fascinating and I really, really enjoy talking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. But before we end, I wanted to ask you, I always ask my guests for recommendations on something to read or watch that inspires them on this topic. Do you have a recommendation that you'd like to share? Well, my own professional organization, the Modern Language Association, published a collection, an anthology of essays on teaching film. But it's not just about teaching film. There are in this book, also, I can send you the link. It's edited by Lucy Fisher and Patrice Petro. But in the uh, book, uh, there are sections, for example, um, dealing with the interdisciplinarity of mm. film. And this, again, can take us into the direction of uh, literature for sure. But there are other directions in which film studies can go as well. And there's also a wonderful section which I keep recurring to, especially uh, more recently, on uh, film and, and media in the digital age. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, again, my example of uh, wheeling that videotape machine into a classroom in 1998, and my gosh, what can be done with film in the digitized world we're faced with now. But there is one thing that I'd, I'd like to share with you. In the pandemic, it's given me an opportunity to uh, give myself over to uh, one of my favorite kinds of reading. It's reading of uh, biographies and mm -hmm. autobiographies of some of my favorite writers. One of my most recent reads is by uh, Blake Bailey, and it's a biography of John Cheever, the very famous short story and novel writer. And uh, I'm, I'm inspired by reading lives of writers uh, like John Cheever and William Styron and Philip Roth and Joyce Carol Oates. I just want to leave your listeners with a passage that uh, John Cheever wrote after he uh, finished his third novel. It's called The Wapshot Scandal. This was in 1962. And he kept a journal all through his professional life. I keep a journal and I, I encourage my students to keep a journal as well. Uh, but this is what he wrote after he finished that novel. Uh, it's very short, but very insightful rumination. He said in 1962, quote, I think of the enormous responsibilities and burdens that have very recently overtaken my fiction. To hold the attention of an audience whose attention is seriously challenged in our modern age, 
to describe with coherence a society that has no coherence, to discover or invent links of precedence and tradition where there in fact are none, and to look into the moral questions of the modern era in order to renew our sense of good and of evil." End quote. Well, I really like that uh, opening phrase, our sense of enormous responsibility. Yes, I hope yes. that our conversation here has kind of touched on that. I, I really do find that, that John Cheever uh, summarizes uh, much of the engagement that was really quite pleasurable for me to have with you. <laughs> whole issue of literature and film. So I thank you for that. Thank you very much. I mean, that's a very powerful quote. And to think that it was written several decades ago, and our world exactly. has only become more complex and more, our attention is being dragged into so many different directions, to actually pay attention to that and reread that passage, actually, because this conversation has given such a good glimpse into looking at film differently, and reading differently. But I think film is something that we often think of as sitting down and just, as you said, zooming through it, but paying attention on how we can be a little bit more un uncomfortable, exposing ourselves to new ideas, having conversations with other people about the ideas being explored has such a important place in our society in order to make it more cohesive and understanding and open so it's a much better place for everyone so thank you very much for sharing all your thoughts and insight and your knowledge on this as always really wonderful to talk to you so thank you very much david thank you so much for the opportunity i really appreciate it thank you